Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, or just trying to rediscover your why. I am your host, Harsha Boralesa, and this podcast came from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you on your path to greater success and fulfillment in your career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. Sometimes your career paths may be circuitous. It might take 22 years to come back, but you can play the long game. I help people envision and visualize and really feel the life that they want. The number one top secret of all the best leaders that I've known, the greatest leaders that I've known, is self-awareness. Without discomfort, there's no change. Your job is not your family. They don't owe you anything. It's an economic arrangement. Thank you so much for joining me today on episode 55 of the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. My guest today is Tuti Tegeli. Before we begin, I wanted to thank all the supporters of the podcast as we have now been downloaded in over 100 countries. For any new listeners, please connect with me on LinkedIn and do subscribe, like and share if you enjoy the content. It makes such a difference. Now back to the show. Tuti coaches co-founders and tech leaders to embrace their unique leadership style to achieve professional impact and a sustainable company culture. She focuses on working with women, people of color, and immigrants. Previously, she was a design leader at design firms, startups, and large companies, including Disney and Facebook. She writes for Harvard Business Review, Business Insider, and Fast Company, and her book, Make Space to Lead, shows high achievers how to reframe our relationship to work. She also has given two TED Talks, the second of which is incredibly popular. She spends her time parenting two-spirited girls, obsessively reading, and paddling out for the next wave. Welcome, Tuti. Thank you. Man, that person sounds so cool. I want to be your friend. It's so (laughs) weird to hear. And yes, yes, that is me. I will own it as well. (laughs) Very good. Um, So Titi, I'm a big fan of the arts. Is there a performer, song, book or film which you'd like to share today? So I've only recently discovered just my love of writing. I've been pretty creative and a designer my entire career, but it's only in the past uh, three years as I've pivoted to my second career have I really gone back into the creativity of writing um, that I had when I was uh, in, in school and abandoned for multiple decades. So if I talk about inspiration right now, one of my biggest inspirations is an author named Matthew Haig, and the book is The Midnight Library, which I absolutely love. And the premise, it's a fiction book. The premise of this is that the protagonist is able to go into a library of books which represent every potential decision, crossroad, path not taken in her entire life. And what she can do at the end of every day, every period, she appears back in the library. There's a librarian, a trusted guide, and she can open a book. And then she's immediately sucked in and is living that version of her life. And there's different versions of her life, you know. What if she pursued her music career and was a pop star? What if she was still dating her first boyfriend? What if? Just like all of these. And what I love about it is the magical realism. I believe that there's space for more beauty, creativity, and magic in our lives. That opens up possibility. I'm a designer. That's the magic of divergent thinking there. But it also shows choice and agency. We can be in full autonomous control of our career and our lives, and we can choose what we want to do. And then ultimately, especially if a lot of people here are looking at career choices, this is a whole library of research where we can all do this and like dream and what if all of these different scenarios in our lives. And, you know, not to not to spoiler it too much, but it's a book after all. And she realizes she's happiest with the life that she's currently in. That's the end part of it. I think it's the most beautiful work of fiction, but I think it's also really widely applicable to personal transformation. 
I like that whole idea of, um, so I'm a big sci-fi fan, and I like the whole idea of alternate realities, you know, time travel, going back in time. And I think that there's almost like an element of, say, your imagination is free when you're thinking about these big ideas. And actually sometimes thinking on this grand scale is really helpful for, for our own lives because I think sometimes we restrict ourselves, our choices, and we do that needlessly. We almost self-edit ourselves. So I just love mm-hmm. love that choice and love the, the whole thought process behind that. So, yeah, I will definitely check that out. So back to the beginning, I, I see you were at Stanford, obviously a very uh, impressive U.S. college. So w- what was it like there and why did you study there? And one thing, I'll just I'll just drop another credential. I actually studied at at Oxford for nine months as well as part of an exchange program, being part of Maudlin College. So Ooh. I guess I can say, well, both sides of the ocean parts there. But um, honestly, I was raised by an Asian tiger mom, just a very hard driving, ambitious, charging mother who put all of her ambitions into into me. A lot of pressure, a lot of drive. And I was a good student. I applied to a whole number of Ivy League colleges and went to decided to go to Stanford of, of all my options. Worked really hard there. Spent years working hard there, years climbing the career ladder. Uh, but there was one thing that I think um, was maybe a really interesting moment there. Many Asian children of the Asian di- diaspora are very familiar with the fact that there's some acceptable careers. Doctor, lawyer, (laughs) engineer, maybe someone in financial services. You got to have the financial security. And for me, it really felt, especially being in Silicon Valley and technology, that I had to be an engineer. I had to be computer science. That's what I was convinced and committed to since um, freshman year. Like, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to find the hardest path and do that. Um, And I learned over my first couple of years that, you know, this was really hard. I thought I was pretty good, but now I'm amongst like world-class people and I'm pulling all-nighters. I'm doing like all of this in terms of like rigorously writing code down to the metal. And I realized that I wasn't enjoying it that much. So one of the blessings is that about probably midway through my second year, I looked around and I said, well, what are the classes that I'm taking that I am enjoying? And I realized that I could pivot Silicon Valley word, switch my path, make some choices there, and actually go into a different major with the classes that I'd already taken. So I ended up majoring in symbolic systems. It's an interdisciplinary major that combines computer science, cognitive psychology, linguistics, and philosophy of mind. And I did a focus in human-computer interaction in it. So what's really amazing, it's a beautiful mix of fuzzy, the humanities, and techie, And for me, it's helped propel me into my design career, which is really about problem solving. And it's about like that intersection between humanizing digital experiences and technology and making it so that us as humans can use them to our best advantages. And also that the technology can help propel us to have better lives. I'm still a dreamer. I'm still an optimist. I do believe that technology can do that even though there's many, many downfalls in ethics. Yes, I worked at Facebook, all these things in there. Um, so that was, uh, that was the, the beauty of my falling into, well, the beauty of my actually seeing what was working and not working for me. I still can discount what I do. Many women do that, especially Asian women. So I caught myself there. And really, it, it led me to my first career where I spent 22 years a, as a design leader in Silicon Valley. And I'm forever grateful for that experience. Cool. No, I, I just love that backstory. Yeah, you were, I suppose, intentional in the sense that you went down one path, it wasn't quite for you, and then you decided to go down this slightly different path. And I think that it, it's important that we almost focus on what we're good at to some extent, what we like, try to make sure that those two intersect. Because I think some people just feel that they have um, a particular destination and they have to go for that head or high water. Mm-hmm. But actually, when you start going down that path, it could be the the idea of it is great, but the actual reality isn't. Um, and I think people need to be slightly kinder to themselves, but also, I think, um, clever about the career paths they go down. No, absolutely. I completely agree with that. It's 
it's a combination of going out, experimenting, feeling, seeing how the world responds to you, your brand, but also going inward and being like, who am I? What do I like? Do I still like this? And it can be hard, especially if you're just out of university, you might not know. And then you just keep going and exploring. And, you know, one thing that's actually really interesting, I'll kind of go back to the analogy of the path not taken at the time. As I mentioned, I studied overseas at Oxford for uh, six months, nine months. And at that time, I was actually an English double major. Oh, cool. Okay. I loved poetry. I, you know, loved being able to take tutorials from William Wordsworth's grandson and just really like learn. I loved writing. And I actually undeclared my English double major because it felt too frivolous. It felt too useless, privilege. I, frivolous. I was on to this design path. And what I think is absolutely beautiful is now what, 22, 25 years later, I'm an author. I love writing. This is such a part of my professional identity now. And it's all been integrated into like my years as a, as a designer and kind of that full breadcrumb trail back to, to one of my original passions. So sometimes your career paths may be circuitous. It might take 22 years to come back, but you can play the long game. Cool. No, no, no. love that point. And, and actually, one of the reasons why I started this podcast was try to think about looking at your career in a strategic manner. Because I think some people, um, they almost like take the first job that they're offered. If it's good, they'll hang in there. Um, clearly, you know, if they're earning some money, they're thinking, oh, I better stay where I am. But actually, and there's nothing people- wrong with that. No, no, I'm not saying I'm just that, saying, like, that's okay if you yeah. don't know any. That, that's perfectly yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I, I totally hear that. But, but I, I do think it's quite helpful sometimes to try and think about the bigger picture because I think you can maybe avoid certain mistakes. Um, and, and clearly, as you're saying, I think it's it's about experimentation. It's testing, seeing if this works. If it doesn't, maybe you know, going down a slightly different path. But I do think that if you can be strategic and you can be intentional, it can save you years maybe down down the line and maybe uh, cutting into a um, an area earlier than than you, you than you might have otherwise. Now, in terms of your career development, did you have a particular strategy? So I think there's a really broad intersection of um, career and life, and it's impossible to separate them. And I speak of this from having been a first-generation immigrant to the United States. And I speak of this in terms of Maslow's hierarchy. I look at people now who are, who are dealing with tech layoffs. And yes, there's a huge identity stab of like, you used to be working at this company and now you're no longer there. But there is a whole nother layer when this company was sponsoring your visa, like your H-1B visa. And now if you're gone... You got, what, uh, 30, 90 days to find another job or you are completely displaced. And I'm answering this question, your question in this way because um, I was on a student visa to the United oh, States. So very strategically, I was a Stanford grad. I was a woman. I'm going to take advantage of whatever people are looking to fill. And I had a lot of offers when I, when I graduated college. I took the most stable one at Oracle, just a very standard CRM ERP company, because I knew that that was the most stable path for me to get an H-1B, a green card, and a path to U.S. citizenship here. There were some gorgeous startups that were so fun, so exciting. In retrospect, none of them led to anything, which is <laughs> which is the case with most startups. It's like buying a lottery ticket. So you just kind of got to jump into what's fun and exciting. And as my first job, it's not like I wasn't excited. It was, it was my first job as a designer. It was my first job in a large design f- team. It was my first job learning how to how to work with with stakeholders, how to do research, how to do all of these things. So it was a very, very fulfilling job. But that was my first decision there. So that was a very strategic decision. Um, and Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Once I had that level of safety and security, because I had that golden ticket, that H-1B visa, the lawyers that the company were sponsoring me with, the path to the green card, I could be a lot more experimental with my career. And af- when I left Oracle... I think in for the next two or three years, I spent 
probably less than a year at my next three jobs. It was a, a pendulum swing. I had the stability. I had the experience, the design experience, designing for very large systems. And then I wanted the shiny objects. I worked for Disney then, super magical experience. And then I jumped from there into a number of different, pretty short-lived jobs, but they were all for a particular reason. I switched jobs to work for Gateway Computers because they were going to make me a manager. I did not spend much time and introspection wondering, why is it that I want to be a manager? What skills do I want to learn? All the things that I coach people on now, it was like shiny object, next step in the career ladder. You're supposed to want this more, better. You want to get closer to the CEO. You want to, you know, limit the number of levels between you and the CEO. That's what I'm supposed to do. Add a lot of good, good old fashioned tiger mom training. So th that was my level of being strategic. Get more experiences, get more money, get more title. That makes sort of complete sense. But I do like the idea of you trying to you know get that stability first, because clearly, mm -hmm. yeah, if you're a, you know, a foreign student in a land and there are these you know visa immigration issues. And actually, because when I was looking at your sort of bio, I was thinking, wow, Oracle, that doesn't sort of like mesh with the other firms. But now now it completely makes sense. Sort of moving on to the tech tech field. It's funny, like I, I studied maths and sciences, so probably very similar to what you did. Uh, yeah, clearly I'm, I'm Asian. I was quite good at maths and sciences. Um, and I Model had, minority, yeah. check. <laughs> but it's funny, I had no clue about tech because none of my friends were really into it for some reason. Um, until a few years ago, I became friends with some tech people. And I really found it fascinating. But I think... Also, there was a part of me where my mindset, I had a very fixed mindset about tech. I had a perception about it. I thought, oh, it's all about coding and it's going to be too complicated, which is ridiculous because clearly if you're logical and you're good at maths and sciences, you can pick it up relatively easily to some extent. But uh, I mean, clearly you're the expert here. What do you think the, the skills that you need to succeed in the tech industry? I think there's a lot. And I think that you're hitting on a couple, of, a couple of the maybe foundational skills. Like most people would think, oh, you know, it would be useful to have some type of functional skills, some expertise in a technical skill, whether it's math, whether it's science, whether it's logic, whether it's coding. And many people do think that. So I'll put that here on the side. However... I believe that there is a heart and soul of tech people as a mindset that I find different from a lot of other industries. And I'll talk about it as on, on the best side, it can be a rebellious, nonconformist, individual-driven, problem-solving type of mindset. There is like that entrepreneurial I can come in, I can figure out the problem. My view, my particular perspective on tech comes from a very innovation, design, creative sense. And honestly, it's the same way that I coach. But what I love about having made and launched products that 5 billion people in the world look, use at Facebook is in the most pure sense, as a technologist, you can imagine a future. You can imagine a beautiful, idyllic, idealistic future where transportation problems are solved with, with on-demand, where people can be connected to other people halfway across the world and form intimate relationships, never having met them. This is all possible because of technology. And I believe as, as a designer, as a dreamer, as a visionary, oh gosh, did I just call myself a visionary? <laughs> I'll, I'll claim it. With, with all this, that right, software is so scalable and digital technology is so scalable that the promise of technology is we can envision ways to completely change the world and make it happen through damn sheer hard work through a very rigorous process of similar to the scientific method, having a hypothesis, putting a, an MVP, a minimum viable product out into the world very quickly, looking at it, iterating, testing, seeing if the hypothesis, the experiment is gonna, gonna succeed or fail. And guess what? It doesn't matter if it succeeds or fails. We just need to learn from it and iterate and iterate and iterate. And that's the whole process. Like, 
that's the product development process from, from tech, which is similar to the scientific method, not invented by tech. But technologists have the ability to see the world as it is, re-envision it as something different, imagine it, make it into reality. And I believe that's the power of designers to like visualize something and then engineers can build it, then launch and test. Yeah, no, I just love those points that you made, Titi, because I think, yeah, it is about trying things out, testing it out, almost this fading forward. And I like that sort of mindset. And I think you can really take that mindset into, you know, your working life or even your personal life. It's about trying things. It's about, you know, figuring out, you know, is this for me? Uh, Am I good at it? Can I make a career out of it? You know, is that person going to be a potential partner or not? Maybe not. You meet them, you move on, you know, if it doesn't work out. But yeah, I I, I just love that whole idea of, you know, know, trying, failing, uh, but also I think being resilient and not thinking of it as a failure, reframing it, looking at it as a, a learning experience. But also I like that whole idea of vision and being visionary because actually with this sort of podcast and the whole reframe and reset your career sort of um, I view it as a startup and and I literally started it as a few podcast episodes, but it's turned into much more than that. And it's not that I, you know, I intentionally wanted you know, that, that result, but sometimes you see a momentum, you go with it and then uh, you know good things happen so i i do love that whole idea about vision looking into the future trying to see how you can improve things for people because in a way what i'm trying to do and i'm sure the same with you is that you know for people who are maybe struggling in their careers they're struggling with their job search trying to say look here are some ideas here are some thoughts here are some techniques um try and see um almost like suck it and see does it work for you? Doesn't it? Maybe it might. Maybe, but we're not sort of gurus. We're not the. We we can't say we'll take you to the promised land. But clearly, here are some ideas, and if you like them, if they resonate with you, that's great. Oh, absolutely. That's that's how I coach. Basically, I pivoted to my second career, maybe my third if I count writing as well. Um, probably about three and a half, four years ago. And the way that I work with clients is exactly as you described. I coach as a designer. I coach as a technologist, which is I help people envision and visualize and really feel the life that they want that is has the most fulfilling career. I'd say it's typically career first because that we've we've got to have an economic livelihood. Yeah. Like that is the, some of the basic well, back to Maslow's hierarchy. We need that. But how do we build that around our fulfilling life? And it's going to vary for each decade of your life, each context of your life, all the things you're dealing with. And then it's really helping people shift their mindset into this and then run a series of experiments and actions so that they be that person who they want to be and that life that they want to be. That's yeah, that's how I coach entirely. And um, what's crazy is I was talking to you earlier about the two parts of tech the foundational hard skills, and then the uh, the mindset shift into this experimental testing mindset. I mean, it's the same thing with, with coaching. Like people think that there are hard skills that need, they need, and there are. There is skills for how to present yourself and your brand, how to communicate clearly upwards, how to build relationships between different stakeholders, how to manage your board, how to hire and fire teams. So that's the content of the coaching, the function of it. But all around, the thing that I'm teaching more is how to shift your mindset, how to have confidence, how to believe in your leadership strengths, and how to have these own tools so that you don't need a coach forever. So you can do this for, for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, no, I just love that. And, and yeah, and I think we're very aligned in terms of what we're trying to do in terms of this whole idea of reframing problems uh, and trying to come up with solutions and and actually I think going forward people it's going to be much more important for people to be able to figure things out because you know say like COVID it never happened I remember in your book you were talking about known unknowns and unknown unknowns and actually going forward there are going to be many more unknown unknowns so just the idea of knowing a lot of information knowing a lot of facts maybe 20 30 years ago that was important Uh, But now it's actually, how do you take the information? And actually, there's so much information and actually analyze it and figure out 
what is the most relevant but also it's this mindset shift and i do think that yeah sure that there's a working element but there's almost like your personal life and i think they're very sort of intertwined because i think if you're not happy in your personal life and i'm not saying that everybody can have the ideal partner and you know whatever they want in their personal life but sometimes it's coming up to a, uh, a realization that okay i'm here where i am now um, maybe my work is more important or something else is more important and that's enough f- for me and you know that's a, a equally as important a realization uh, agreed I think it's everybody has different contexts of where their life is right now and time and space can be really fluid if you're someone in your early 20s and you're really ambitious and it's very important for you to make a mark in your professional world. If that is, you know, talk about priorities. If that is the stack rank top priority right now, more power to you if you want to work 80, 100 hour weeks and build that career. But things might shift when you're like, oh my goodness, but it feels really lonely because my whole life is my work and I don't have, you know, I don't have a partner. I don't have a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a dog. I don't have anything outside this. At some point in time, I believe we're all evolving creatures, evolving humans. At some point in time, it'll shift. So part of it is like paying attention and listening for that shift. You know, when the pure drive of working is not enough anymore, just make sure you listen for it. And then you can shift. And typically as humans, we will partner and marry and have kids and deal with aging parents. Like these, this is the humanness that we all deal with. And part of it is figuring out, well, all these aspects of our life, how important is the time and priority and energy that I put into my work right now? And, you know, we talk about leadership a little bit, I think, on your on your podcast. The number one secret, the number one top secret of all the best leaders that I've known, the greatest leaders that I've known is self-awareness. So it's having that ability to listen for these little whispers to know yourself enough and then tweak, shift, experiment when you hear them. No, I just love that. And I think really, yeah, almost following your gut and learning to follow your gut. Because I think sometimes our intuition, if you can develop it, it's really like a a secret spider sense and listening to it and learning when it's right. And maybe if it's off, um, it can really give you almost another superpower. So yeah, I, I just love that. And actually this is, that's a nice segue onto sort of leadership because clearly, you know, when you look at your career, you've done some amazing things on the leadership front. And I think your last job in corporate was as a, a manager at Facebook. Now, um, how did you find the whole Facebook experience? And also just in terms of leadership, um, what did you learn and how did you find it? Because a lot of our listeners, um, the majority of women, and they're very interested in the whole leadership aspect. So I just love that you have um, you know, got to that incredible level at, at Facebook. Love it or hate it, a very impactful company in the world. And as with most things that have high recognition, it's going to be both. Um, So one thing first I wanted to address, and I do it, you do it, we all do it. We conflate management and leadership. We assume that you are not a leader unless you manage people. I think it's the setup of the corporate world, the system that we live in. I 100% don't believe that. For me, leadership is having the self-awareness, the actions, the autonomy to intentionally shift and move, we'll say your career in this point, to be the best working professional, the best person you can be. Just having that level of leadership, that self-awareness, that agency, that autonomy, and that intentionality is how I define leadership. So the good news is, Kind of like Dumbo's little magic feather that helps him fly. If you're actually thinking and trying to improve your leadership, then that makes you a leader. And isn't that a much better definition than waiting from someone else to promote you and say, oh my gosh, you are so great. You get to manage two people. You are now a leader. I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about the way that I view leadership and management. I think that's a good point because I, I do think it's important for people to see that distinction between management and leadership. Anybody, yeah, you can be a leader of yourself. 
or you can find things you, know, you don't necessarily have to be given a team um so yeah but 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 i suppose yeah just in terms of uh, leadership are there any uh, things that you, any lessons that you've learned which might be able to help them you know how did you find it i mean clearly there's a female aspect and also there's the additional aspect of being asian as well um so it'd be good to so talk about that yeah one of the things that I work a lot with, um, especially because I support women, people of color and immigrants, is a sense of finding out who you are, who, what your authentic leadership is. And let's just say our world is changing. There used to be a time, and I don't know if it was 10 years, 30 years ago, where there was one model of leadership. And the model of leadership was very much command and control. I'm the boss. I'm the expert. I'm going to tell you what to do because, damn it, I've earned it. And there tends to be a correlation between older men having that model of leadership. This is simply, I think, like a pretty accurate state of the power dynamics in in the world and, and in the corporate world. And we look to the models around us to learn. As kids, we look to our parents to emulate the behaviors. In our first jobs, we look to the managers and the leaders around us for like, what is, what is, who gets rewarded in this system? Who gets promoted in this system? And yeah, I'm a good student. I want to learn. I want to do all that. So I would say for the first 10, 15 years of my career, I tried to erase my color and my gender. I tried to lead like a man because those were the models that I saw around me. Now, I spent many years uh, as a brand strategist and creative director in world-class design firms, where as a services industry, we were meant to be experts. You know, the, the Nokias, the Googles, the LGs, the Samsungs of the world came to us and said, tell us, oh, mighty design firm, what is the future of connected kitchens? mobile computing, you know, smartphones. What is the future all of this? So my role as the creative director was to come in and be like, well, let me tell you what the future is. Let me be the expert. Let me build beautiful prototypes and videos of how people might be interacting with all of these things. And I was very much that command and control leader. It was the models around me. It was the rewards, but it didn't feel very good felt like I was putting on an act, putting on armor, but I just tried harder. Good old uh, Asian tiger mom, immigrant mentality is not working. You just try harder. You put in more effort. It's going to work eventually. Um, And I did notice that, yeah, there is a conscious or unconscious, implicit or explicit bias that something that I would say and the way that I would act would be treated completely different um, than, if it, than if it came from one of my, my, my male colleagues yeah. Yeah. or one of my colleagues of a different uh, race. And uh, I realized that it just didn't feel good leading like this. And you mentioned, uh, you mentioned um, Facebook. I think a lot of the shift of my leadership style happened when I was able to leave this design firm, design agency, um, Petri dish. I mean, for people, you can kind of imagine if you want a little bit of like Don Draper, Mad Men-esque part of it. Not completely like this, but there is the, I must problem solve. I must come up with a brilliant creative idea. And I left there and I was in startups for a couple of years, which really got me into like the building, the, um, the, the humbleness of actually like trying and experimenting and trying and experimenting. And then I got a lot of leadership support at, um, at Facebook. I also got through kind of that next 10 years of my career, I got my first leadership coach, an executive coach who actually put up a mirror and let me see myself and like would ask me these questions like, is this how you want to lead? Is this your style? What is your brand? So I think slowly, very slowly, I mean, there is no, and then a miracle happened. This is slowly over time, I iterated and iterated my leadership style to over, I don't know, 10, 12 years. It's still happening now where I'm, the way that I lead is pretty unique to to me. 
And it's a mixture of my lineage and my heritage of having immigrant families, of being brought up with that Asian tiger moms. And there's a lot of directness that I have from that because my mom was a rebel for her times. And so I have that. And I also have compassion and empathy and curiosity and design skills. And that unique mixture has been part of me being an other, moving around all the time as a, as a, as a youth, having these experiences growing up, plus the learned skills. So I want to leave, um, I want to leave listeners with, you know, also one practical tip, because I'm telling about my story and they're like, well, what do I, what the hell do I do with that? <laughs> but um, one of the biggest shifts that I see for early career professionals is that when you're in school, you're really rewarded on what I call performance currency. Yeah. It's, you know, you do what the teacher tells you, you turn in the thing, yeah, you, you know, do it in the right way. Like biology, you got to memorize a lot of stuff. If you do it well, you get the gold stars. And that's early on in your career too. And this is why, um, and forgive me, I do not know the European data. So this is a very American centric view of it. But if you look at the, the American statistics and data, a lot of Asian Americans will enter the workforce at the junior levels. Because, hey, our parents prize education. So we probably graduated. Well, we did graduate, according to the data in the U.S., at higher levels than people of other, um, other races. So you enter the workforce and you're viewed as being the model minority, hardworking, conscientious, and shut up and keep your mouth shut and just do whatever the boss says. As a junior, line level, rank and file, first job, people like that. And people, many people still have this old school type of leadership of command and control. You just shut up and do what I say, just get the thing done. Yep. So we're all raised on this system of performance currency. You get rewarded for performance currency. You get rewarded to work hard, put in their hours. I mean, I've talked to so many women um, just in their first couple of years uh, in the law, in a law firm. Like, and I'm sure you have that from your history of understanding what's what's expected in financial services or in management consulting, you put in the hours, but there's a ceiling. Call it a glass ceiling, call it a bamboo ceiling, call it a whatever ceiling that you hit where performance currency isn't enough. You can keep working your tail off, but somehow you're not getting promoted. Somehow you're not getting the strategic work, the creative work, the innovative work, because you're just a worker bee. Yeah, no, and, I um, no, I love that point because I think it's really about being smart and and and, and you know, I totally take this point that you know if you're at um, you know school, university, and the, the early levels of your career, it's about like getting the job done, getting mm -hmm. the getting the grade, and doing mm -hmm. these technical things very well. But actually, beyond uh, say three to five years, it's yep. all about being smart, being clever, building your networks, almost thinking about the future thinking about who the, yeah, the the teams that you should be going on. And actually it's about building those relationships uh, and figuring yep. out who are the the people to uh, not, not befriend, but try and impress and yep. get on their teams. And maybe if it's not working where you are, don't, don't be afraid of mm -hmm. moving either sideways or out. Because um, I think sometimes people have this mentality of, you know, if it, it, I've got to make it work where I am. No, forget it. Just move. Don't be afraid to move. Because I think that maybe the first time you move somewhere, you think, oh, it's going to be tough. But look, firms are firms, people are people. And actually, it's much, you know, once you've done that first move, it's much easier to make the second and third. I mean, what do you think, Tuti? No, absolutely. I mean, I think that key is moving from moving from performance currency to relationship currency, making that mental shift. And I'll say it again, moving from performance currency to relationship currency is the biggest mindset shift unlock that any early career professional should be able to make. And it can be hard. But, but also I think having sort of imagination as well, I think is so important because if you can see opportunities, you can see maybe some themes that are happening in the industry before other people and you're ahead Fair. of the curve. It Fair. does make such a difference to sort of be in at the beginning. Um, I mean, sorry. Sure. I mean, you don't have to have imagination. Imagination is nice. Of course, I'm a designer, but 
I don't think there's any magic sauce or anyone needs to be special and imaginative and creative. Of course, all of this helps. But if we just go back to the basics of having a successful career, it's building those relationships. It's building them where you are right now, being really mindful that, hey, if you're in a meeting, it's not, don't disdain it to be spending five minutes, 10 minutes connecting with the other person as a human. That's what people are going to remember. I mean, my the Maya Angelou quote, um, I don't know if I can do this exactly, but people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but they will always remember how you made them feel. That is the heart of relationships. And we all know how to do this because we're humans and we have relationships in our out-of-work life. So it's putting more of that into work and doing it in a genuine fashion For me, Harsha, that's the basic building blocks. Everything else is sprinkles on top of the cake. Of course, creativity, of course, innovation, of course, you know, all of this. But I think it's back to those, like, back to the basics. It's relationships, which enables things. Because if if networking is not about finding another job, but it's building connections with different people, then it won't feel so icky. And then it will open up more opportunities. It will open up imagination. It will open up possibilities because when you're alone in your head, in your little home office, you're stuck. Talking to people, being with people opens up possibilities and imagination as, as you've been talking about, Harsha. Yeah, no, no, I just just love that point. And actually now turning to your first book, Make Space to Lead, really enjoy read it, reading it. So um, what's it about and why did you write it, Titi? I wrote it because it, I had to, like the messages needed to come out into the world and people were asking me about this repeatedly. So it chronicles um, some parts of it, my, my, my ability to change careers, how it was possible for me to move out of the corporate world and what that journey was to working for myself and becoming a coach and a writer. Um, but more than that, it actually goes through a lot of the steps of, of how I coach, of this mindset shift of it talks about really how to use the design process, the uh, product development process that I've spent 22 years building up this skill set and launching these giant products to the world, how to apply that to yourself. I think a very soulful book because it's about the doing of it. We talk a lot about, you know, um, function. But it's also about the form, which I'm a designer. It's building in the creativity, the ease, the flow. Um, There's a lot of surfing metaphors in it because I'm a surfer as well. And it's having just both sides of that, the, the resilience and the grinding and the grit, but also the value of rest, slowing down, introspection, because that's where I believe true creativity and innovation That's where they breathe. You cannot be creative, the most creative on a deadline. We can try. There's ways to do it. You know, I've pushed through it many times, but you need that rest time. So that's why it's make space to lead. And it's also about identifying your patterns. That's the data. That's your data and how to break them. Yeah. And I like that point you make about the creativity and this idea of space blocks, because I totally agree with you that you know, I think the great ideas come, you you do the work, you put the work in, but actually it's when you're offline and you're not really thinking about the problem, that's when maybe the aha moments or that sparks of genius happen. Um, I mean, what do you think, Tuti? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've seen that through all my years as a designer. I mean, I'm sure listeners will experience this, that you might get a brilliant spark of an idea when you're in the shower, Well, when you're out for a walk or a run, when you get those endorphins, I mean, for me, it's when, when I surf and then the other part to actually, so that's the, the aloneness, the way where your brain, your, your conscious brain can rest so that your subconscious, your unseen, your creative brain can come out more. And then the second way to do it, which is much more intentional is with people because that's the sparks with people. Those are the conditions that I've seen by which created creativity and innovation will thrive. Yeah. And I I like that point about interacting with people because, you know, I'm not really big into the idea of brainstorming, but I do like the idea of just talking things through with somebody. When you're talking to somebody, you have to actually articulate that and you have to put your ideas into words. And just by doing that, 
that can either strike something within you or actually the, if if the other person doesn't understand it, they'll say, can you explain it to me? Yep. And that whole process actually does give rise to creativity. I mean, Absolutely. Well, yeah. yeah, and most people do brainstorming wrong. Yeah. It's been subverted, shoved into a corporate meeting format. You know, so many times, how many times have you come into a meeting that was called a brainstorm when the facilitator of the meeting was like, all right, this is what we're going to do. Give me some feedback. Thanks so much for, this was a fantastic brainstorm, everyone. Got your input. We're all on board. We're going to go forward with this. I mean, come on. Brainstorm has a terrible bad rep because most people don't know how to do it. Yeah. yeah. So that's, yeah. I don't, don't knock the ideation and generative yeah. magic process of coming up with ideas, coming up with the volume of terrible ideas with people, that is the hallmark of a good brainstorm. Like spending the time generating volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes of options and possibilities. This is the divergence process. That's magical. And you know what? Your rational brain needs to come back and converge, needs to figure out the action, needs to put it on the roadmap, what the next step is. But that's not brainstorming. I love that point. And actually, I think sort of going forward, you have these sort of known unknowns and unknown unknowns. And it's almost like you've got to get comfortable with the idea of discomfort and of not knowing. And I like the way in your book, you apply it to the interview scenario. Yes. Change and unknown is just uncomfortable. Just is, right? We all experience the fear, just like the deep visceral fear fear and discomfort, we collectively experienced it with the pandemic. It's all unknown and we experience it every day with work. Am I still going to have a job? Did I want to have a job? Wait, maybe the people who got laid off have it better because now they have severance. No, no, no. I want to have a job. It's like all that fear and like mental fog all around. I fundamentally believe, and this is like deep in my value system, that without discomfort, there's no change. Simply by being human, living in this wildly complex world of ours, change is going to happen to us. Hello, pandemic. We got to figure out what our capacity is to be uncomfortable. We've got to acknowledge that, yeah, I feel sad. I feel despair. I feel lonely. These are the wide range of human emotions. And we try to optimize because we just want to feel good and happy and positive, lots of toxic positivity, just do the self-care, do all the happy stuff. But it's it's in the discomfort that we get to really look at ourselves. And I think it's in the change and discomfort where new things arise. You know? And one of the worst years of my life precipitated my, my career change. It was a really terrible year where in the period of a year, my marriage fell apart and I had two young kids. Um, my father-in-law passed and I'd known him as my American father since I was 18. And then my father passed. Wow. And three, like, boom, boom, boom. A lot of discomfort and like a forest fire that burns through the environment. Oh, gosh, this is way too cheesy of a metaphor. But new shoots, new life, new beginnings arise from after that. It's you got to sometimes you got to burn it all down and work through the discomfort and pain and it's all wonderful. It's all part of being human and something new and different will emerge. And I do like that point. I think there are always going to be difficult moments in your life. You can't you know, not have them. But in a way, you have to accept that. You have to feel the pain. Nobody's saying, yeah, it's like that whole thing. Oh, you, you'll get over it. I mean, people have different time scales. Some yep. people can get over things quickly. Other people, it takes longer. But I think you need to be um, comfortable with it, whatever pace you're, yep. you're taking to get over things. Wallowing in things for too long is not optimal, but you know, a few months or, and then, and then you move on. But it's, I do think that whole idea of self care is, is so important. Absolutely. Yeah. You've got to take whatever time it, it, you need to be with your emotions, to wallow and to find what makes you feel good during that time. Yeah. yeah, no, no, completely. And 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 actually, um, sort of going another point that I really liked in your book was that, you know, you talked about um, how you dealt with failure, I think, when you were let go from one of your jobs. And I think, you know, especially now, this is a really hard time for people, you know, especially in the tech industry, and actually all industries, people are being let go. And I think in life, um, it's about sometimes managing failure. Because, you know, for, for a lot of the a lot of people, they have 
only had success. You know, they've done well in school. They've gone to say Stanford, got that great job. And then probably being laid off um, for the first time is a huge blow to your ego because, you know, you can't say I work at Facebook or Google or what, wherever it is, you know, I'm just me. And you always, you're, you're, you don't have that armor uh, to present to the world. Um, are there any thoughts about how people can deal with that? Because I think it's not just about finding a new job. It's about uh, figuring out to, uh, getting in the right space mentally and getting a good headspace. When tech layoffs started happening, just that particular chapter in my book, I think it's called The First Time I Was Fired. I actually made it available publicly for, for people to read because I wanted to share my story to normalize it, to be like, hey, you might call it a failure, but hey, it's a notch on your belt. When was the first time you were fired? I remember talking to a group of leaders and we were like, oh, my first time. <laughs> so I wanted to I wanted to destigmatize that. That's why I published it. Um, so I'm sure we can put that in the show notes. Yeah. I think a lot of what you talk about, Harsha, is a question of identity. If you are a hard-charging, career-focused professional, which all the listeners of this podcast are, right? You're listening to this because you want transformation. You want to be better. And kudos to you for taking the time to do that and invest in you, right? But if you are this person... How could you not have part of your identity be, I'm a hard worker, I'm a professional, I'm a Facebook employee, I'm a Google employee, I am a highly paid financial services person, I'm a lawyer, right? This is our identity. This is very, very human. It's even, it's even harder in, in the startup world because I work with a lot of co-founders and the startup you made, it is yours. It is your baby. You've begged money from friends and family and investors because this is your baby. This is your idea. How? So the best thing that I can give people is like a sense of a sense of self-awareness, a sense of realizing that, yeah, my identity is as CEO of this startup. So it's going to be crushing when you have to lay off people. It's going to be crushing when you made some mistakes in expanding too fast during the pandemic. And now you kind of lost people's faith in you because you, you failed. Like it's going to be crushing. And then similar, if you're a worker, yeah, it's going to be crushing. It was great when it was wonderful and you were doing good things and the stock market was rising high. But yeah. So my best advice to people is be really aware of these identities. If you're currently working, Ask yourself, how much of my identity is wrapped up with succeeding and being really good at this job? How much of my identity can be shifted away from what externally people give you? Perhaps my identity is less about, did I receive that promotion? Did I receive that rating? Perhaps it's more about what skills am I learning and building at this job? Because those skills, they're going to be with you forever. Those are core identity. Your job is not your family. They don't owe you anything. It's an economic arrangement where you get great skills, they get great work. So if we're kind of cold-hearted, sober, and know that, that's okay. And of course, you should have an identity as being a Google or Facebook or employee. Of course, that's great. But be aware it's not a family. Even as a startup co-founder, you have identities outside of that. So if you're working right now, Spend a little bit of time thinking about what your identity, your other identities are. Is it as a son? Is it as a mother? Is it as a sibling? Is it as a pickleball player? <laughs> is it as a, an artist? Is it as a hiker? Is it as a surfer? And just be aware of your, your, your vastness of other identities and know what skills you can take with you. If you're looking at this job as skills building, that's a different identity. Yeah, no, I, I just love those points you make. You know, say with this, you know, the podcast and the YouTube channel. It, it, obviously, there are metrics, and everybody looks at downloads and whether you're on this list or that list, which which are important. If you actually focus on the process and actually making good work and work that resonates with people, um, then I think the good things will happen. I mean, clearly, you have to be able to market it properly. If you can focus on just doing good work and not being so much 
concerned about the external validation. That's quite a helpful thing uh, to some extent. But I mean, what? what, what I disagree. I disagree. Cool. Okay. I think it's both, and you need both. I am huge fan of data. I I served as head of design for a big data um, analytics cleansing visualization company, and I'm a huge fan of data. We need to set metrics. It's really important to know where we want to go. I think it's fabulous to say, I'm going to start podcasting. I want to be in the top 10 of um, top podcasts in this particular category. Metrics are hopes. Metrics are dreams. Metrics are a little bit of a North Star for us to be headed towards. And external validation feels fantastic. Come on, we all love it. And we all know it. Those are the gold stars. <laughs> I'm not saying don't go for external validation. It's good. Don't go 100% for external validation. Set the metrics, set the goals, revel and celebrate when you get that, because that was your hard work going into it. But always know that maybe they're not that important. I, I'd say set the counter metrics too, which is I am willing to go for that top 10 in podcasting, but only for 10 hours a week. You know, that's the counter metric. Counter metrics and metrics are habits that help you go towards becoming your best self. So I'd say keep on doing all of that. And then also, of course, pay attention to everything else we've been talking about on on this program. The self-awareness, your energy, the relationships around you, all your different forms of identities. I'm not, I'm not going to say you, you are wrong, peoples, for wanting external validation. No, bring it on. We all love it. Celebrate it. Revel in it. But also know that you can change your mind. Maybe after a year or two, you're like, oh, I don't, I don't care about that. I'm just doing podcasting for the sheer fun of it because I get to meet other people and it's the learning. And as a designer throughout my career, I've had I've had like one big consistent tagline, catchphrase, which is trust the process. Trust the process. Trust that whatever you're doing and unveiling and doing right now is right. But my corollary would be also have a goal, have a North Star, and then know that you can change your mind. I think maybe I haven't phrased it as eloquently as you have. But no, I, I totally agree with that. I think you got to trust the process, but also you do have to see that I think the metrics are helpful in terms of you know planning your resources, seeing what works, seeing what resonates, because I think getting feedback, and if you can't speak to your listeners directly, then the metrics do help because then you can Absolutely. see like, what are they listening to, where are they dropping off. I, I, I totally agree with that. Really loved our conversation, but I know that we're sort of coming towards the end of it. But I did want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about your TEDx talk, which has been blowing up recently. Um, Maybe you'd like to share that with our listeners now? I'd mentioned earlier that I primarily coach with women, people of color and immigrants. And it's a subject that's really near and dear to my heart, as I spoke about earlier with me reconciling what it means for me to be an Asian American woman. So my second book that I've been doing research and writing on for about a good year is called Hardworking Rebels, How to Lead and Succeed as Asian American Women. And I was very gratified in January to give um, a TEDx talk, which is, you know, how to lead as an Asian American woman. And it has been blowing up and I'm super gratified about that. And really a lot of the message is similar to what we've been talking about on this, on this podcast. Many of us have felt like we don't belong, that in the corporate world, we are othered and different for whatever reason, because you're not male, because you're not a certain ethnicity, because you speak different, because you are neurodivergent because you are not in the main corporate office. You're in a satellite office. There's lots of instances of, of othering and feeling different and feeling like you don't belong. So this talk, while it's based on my research with you know 60 plus interviews with Asian American women and a lot of third party research into neuroscience and psychology, it really is talking about like the core kernel of it is your otherness, your differences, your lineage values, your race, your gender, your, the sum of your total life experiences, that's your superpower. That is you. That is your leadership. 
the closer and more self-aware and accepting you can get into understanding that, and that's what I work with a lot of my clients are on, that's your brand. That's your leadership. And it doesn't have to be like all the way vulnerable. There's certain levels of vulnerability that you can go and authenticity that you can go to the outside world. But you lean into your otherness as your source of strength. And that's what's going to make you the best leader possible without compromising who you are. You don't have to put on an armor and lead, take on a command and control style of leadership that's not yours. So that's the essence of the message of the TEDx talk. It talks about three strategies that are much more actionable that you can do. And that is, uh, that's what I'm working hard on for, for the book. And I think that's a great point you bring up because I think with sort of diversity and equity, um, obviously there's a fairness element, which I totally agree with. But I do think that if you don't have different voices in the room, then clearly you're not going to get the full range of ideas. But I also do think that that point you're making about leadership, this, you know, visionary leader um, being somebody who's this you know, amazingly charismatic person. I mean, and you have a sort of a perception of what that person looks like, but clearly there can be incredibly charismatic and uh, inspirational people from different um, ethnicities and uh, genders and 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 whatever. Um, and I think sometimes uh, you know you shouldn't almost rule yourself out. You should uh, you know push put yourself forward and see um, see what happens. Um, but don't let you know, what what is currently available stop you from your uh, achieving your goals and ambitions of leadership what, what do you think? absolutely yeah and there are so many more examples of different types of leaders out here right now whether it's Kamala Harris in the United States whether it's Jacinda Arden there are many different types of role models so we don't solely look at one standard commanded control form and I'd say that's what that's been the beauty of this last five years, seeing so many different types of leaders emerge and seeing that we are not okay with types of sexist harassment, discriminatory, discriminatory behaviors that have been what's happened in the past. People fall because of that. And people are unafraid to speak openly about it right now. Change is slow, but it's happening. Cool. Obviously, this is a career podcast. So uh, if, if people are looking for work at the moment, are there any thoughts about how um, best to navigate and the strategy or any, anything you'd like to add there? Yeah, I would actually invite people to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm Tootie Tagerly. I post a lot of content. And if this is podcast is interesting to you, I post a lot of video, lives, really articles, both ones that I've written because... Actually, in line of what we were talking about, I just submitted a, an article to my Fast Company editor that's about how do you create metrics that matter for your life? Very in line of what we were just talking about. It's what I do. I love to write. I love to create. So if you, um, if you follow me, you'll get more, more of this content in your life. And of course, if you are looking for more deep, specific support, or if you just want to say, what did you like about this? reach out, leave comments in sh on, on the podcast or reach out to me directly. I think it's about finding your voice, raising your voice, taking action. You're listening to this, great. Take one other piece of action and comment, follow, subscribe, do that next thing because all these actions, man, that makes you better. Yeah, and I, and I think that's a great sort of final point about action because – I'm a, just a big believer of, look, thinking is important, analysis is important, but you just have to take action. And I think it's that person who does a small thing every day, you know, 365 days a year, who will really get these amazing results purely by they're making a commitment and they're just doing. Uh, whereas, you know, you get the other type who are thinking and thinking and thinking, and there's no action. Um, and I'm not, and look, sometimes the action doesn't work out, but actually that's information. Um, yeah, failure is, is, a, is sometimes a good thing because you're figuring out that doesn't work, but I'll go down another path. Um, failure is a great yeah. thing. Yeah. No, no, I, I, I just love that. And, and one final thought, Tutti. Um, I like to offer my guests, um, a chance to give a shout out to somebody who's helped them in their lives or their careers or anything. I'll give a shout out to really one, um, 
Oh, so many. I have so many coaches and guides and <laughs> shaman guides. I will actually give a shout out right now to probably my coach who has been one of the most transformative in 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 my life this past year and a half is, is a gentleman named Teo Alfaro. He's helped me get a lot in touch with my spiritual side, cool. developing confidence, intuition, and really an expansion of, of energetic and creative capacity. TJ, thank, thank you so much uh, for you know, taking the time to share your thoughts with our, our listeners today. Uh, I'm sure they'll get huge amounts of value uh, from you and also from all the content that you produce. Um, and uh, I'll make sure all your information is in the show notes. Uh, and and by the way, so you're on LinkedIn, Tutti Tegeli. Uh, you've obviously got a website, tutitegeli.com. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And, thank you, Harsha. You're, you're very good at your job. Twitter. Instagram. Connect, connect with me on LinkedIn for professional stuff. Instagram, right. if you want to see something more fun, I'm at Tootie on Instagram. Cool. You, you take care, Tootie. Th- thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much, Harsha. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such a fun interview. If you'd like to listen to more episodes, please subscribe to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers. And subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Wishing you success with your career. I hope you will join me again in the future.